We found the pandemic to be an opportunity for us. You know, it, it challenged a lot of us in the field to think about what we're doing, and, and we were able to pivot, you know, in part because of that, but in part because we had set the groundwork in our strategic plan for digital opportunities. There's more available online than ever through our online collections database where you can explore over 30,000 artifacts in the collection remotely from your home at this point to uh, educational programs, videos, uh, and other things through our Center for Digital History. But even in 2020, um, during the pandemic, we were able to open the site. We had a season, although it was curtailed for obvious reasons um, and had certain constraints on it. We have the benefit of having a nearly 2,000-acre historic site. Hi, I'm Dr. Matthew Cagle. I am the curator here at Fort Ticonderoga, where for 2023, we have an exciting series of public programs, events, living history opportunities, exhibitions, and other things going on surrounding uh, a particularly interesting, although not often well-known year in Fort Ticonderoga's history as part of our broader program to explore a different year of Fort Ticonderoga's history every year we are open to the public. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Matthew Cagle joins us, curator of collections at Fort Ticonderoga, one of the oldest and most significant historic sites and museums in North America. Originally from Vermont, Dr. Cagle earned a doctorate at Bard Graduate Center in New York. You started uh, talking about this year's special theme at Fort Ticonderoga. This is the second time I believe you've joined us from the fort. And when you were on the last time, you talked about that year's theme. But this year, I understand you're taking a look at the year 1760. Uh, What was significant about 1760? Yeah, that's exactly right. And for over a decade now, Fort Ticonderoga has uh, explored a different year of the fort's history. Every year we are open to the public, and this year we have reached 1760, which... If you're not familiar with what happened at Fort Ticonderoga in 1760, it it comes as no surprise to me. It's not one of the better-known years in Fort Ticonderoga's sweeping narrative, and yet it's very important because it's the final year of active campaigning against the French, uh, at least in the northern part of North America, during what we know as the French and Indian War. Uh, So an army is assembling in the Champlain Valley uh, over the spring of 1760, only one part of a three-pronged offensive led by General Jeffrey Amherst. Um, One arm, as I say, was launched from the Champlain Valley, particularly from Crown Point, um, would head uh, up, or rather down, Lake Champlain to the north, um, going against French positions at Ilonois to drive towards the city of Montreal. And two other wings of the army, one leaving from Quebec City and the other under Amherst's direct command, went out the Mohawk uh, out into Lake Ontario and then uh, down the St. Lawrence River, uh, all of which were planned to converge around the city of Montreal uh, to force its surrender. And remarkably and incredibly, they did. Within just days of each other, these three armies converged around the city of Montreal um, with very little communication between them, facing the siege of French fortifications, uh, rapids and naval and land engagements uh, on on all sides, uh, and overwhelmed uh, the French defenders who were forced to capitulate. And ultimately, it's the end of the campaign of 1760, which confirms that New France will no longer be a French colony, uh, but will be part of the British Empire. But of course, this all happens miles away from Ticonderoga itself. 
Right. And this is interesting because it represents a pretty big shift in the role that Ticonderoga has because for every previous year of the French and Indian War, Ticonderoga, or Fort Garion mm. as the French knew it, had been the objective of British campaigns. And in 1760, it transitions into a supporting role, really, for the first time. Um, and this is where our public interpretation, that is our, our living history program, will explore the soldiers that were stationed here at Ticonderoga. Um, in the campaign of 1760, we see a shift from previous operations, which is quite interesting, in that most of the regular troops in the theater are joined by provincial soldiers from Rhode Island and New Hampshire and Massachusetts to join the expedition um, going down Lake Champlain. And the garrison of Ticonderoga is left in the hands of two New York independent companies. And those are the soldiers that we're going to be portraying this year. And they're particularly interesting because it represents in some ways how dramatic a shift the Seven Years' War presented to the military landscape of North America. Because these companies, prior to the opening of the war in 1754, had been the only British regulars in the continent. And New York uh, province had four independent companies that were stationed as the only real representation of British military power, um, kind of severely underfunded and mismanaged and not regimented as part of one of the regiments of the British Army, hence the title Independent Companies. Mm. Um, and there had been attempts to regiment them during the war, but it, it came to naught. Um, and they ended up doing effectively kind of garrison duty behind the lines, even though some of the companies had actually served during the, the Monongahela campaign uh, in 1755 under Edward Braddock. Um, but they were doing behind-the-lines work, and two companies were assigned to Fort Ticonderoga to guard the uh, supply lines, to husband the military stores that were stationed there that were helping supply the army as it advanced northward, uh, and also to help to rebuild and stabilize the old French fortifications that were there. Mm. And one of the most interesting things about them is that uh, two companies at Ticonderoga um, were commanded uh, by captains. This is the highest rank within the independent companies. Um, and the specific troops that we are portraying this summer were in Captain Horatio Gates's independent company. Oh. Which is a name that, that might be familiar to some, um, because, of course, Horatio Gates rise to prominence uh, during the American Revolution as an American officer. Uh, but he began his career as a British officer and was, in fact, the commander of one of these New York independent companies. Um, and it's through his papers that we've been able to understand better their material world, their uniforms, arms, and equipment. Um, the correspondence between Gates and his lieutenants has allowed us a window into what is actually going on at Ticonderoga that visitors will see uh, when they explore here. However, I should say that Horatio Gates himself had been uh, given the rank of brigade major, kind of administrative role in the army, and was himself in western Pennsylvania during 1760, leaving the day-to-day -day operations of his company here at Ticonderoga uh, to his subordinates. These independent uh, companies tended to be, or they were composed of people who I guess I'd consider as American or American provincials, but they were part of the British Army. They, they, were, they were not actually a provincial unit. They were part of the British Army. They were heavily recruited in Britain. Um, they do have to fill their, uh, their numbers because, of course, the attrition of, of time and war meant that uh, the numbers uh, certainly <laughs> decreased over time. Um, but they were you know, mostly European in their composition, even though there oh, are some uh, Americans there. They are regular British soldiers. 
Horatio Gates himself, an Englishman, uh, is in command. The other, the other officers are British officers that have come to take over. In fact, the other company stationed at Ticonderoga was captained by Alan McLean, uh, who was an officer who had actually served in the battle here in 1758 um, and eventually goes back to Britain by the end of the war and raises a, a Highland regiment, um, one of the high-numbered regiments raised by the British during the war to serve perhaps in, in Germany uh, or elsewhere in Europe. Um, and ultimately, uh, his career winds him towards the American Revolution, proposing uh, a regiment of demobilized Scottish soldiers that had settled in North America to act as a buffer against the tumultuous colonists uh, that becomes regimented in 1775 as a provincial regiment known as the Royal Highland Emigrants. Um, and he is instrumental in defending the city of Quebec from the Continental Army uh, in December of 1775. So even within these two independent companies stationed at Ticonderogas, we see two very different futures for officers of the British Army in the kind of tumult of the revolutionary era. How do you portray that, uh, this experience of 1760, or what will be some of the things that will be done at Fort Ticonderoga this season to illustrate this story? Well, that's that's a great question. So if visitors come during our campaign season, when we just opened uh, on May 6th, and we'll be open to the end of October, um, every day they will be able to see and engage uh, with the soldiers of uh, Gates's independent company, uh, as well as uh, other troops that were passing through, depending on the time of the year. Um, so every day uh, is effectively an event here at Ticonderoga. We have musket demonstrations and cannon firing demonstrations based on the drills that we know are being employed by independent company troops and the British Army more generally uh, during the campaign of 1760. Uh, our historic trades program, uh, tailoring and shoemaking in particular, uh, will be operating all year because it is through those programs that we actually reconstruct the specific uniforms and equipment and footwear worn by these soldiers uh, during the campaign of 1760, whether that's going through our own collections and exploring uh, shoes recovered from uh, naval vessels that were sunk in Lake Champlain, um, or documenting the specific arms that were carried by these regiments based on their own inspection returns, as well as the collections that we have here at the museum, uh, visitors will get a, a first-hand encounter with these soldiers on a, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Matthew Cagle is uh, with us. He's curator at Fort Ticonderoga. Let me ask you to uh, go back back in time from 1760 and then maybe ahead in time past 1760 for a brief overview of Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, Like when the fort was built, as I believe you said, it was built by the French and had a different name. Exactly. Yeah, Fort Ticonderoga began life uh, originally as Fort Vaudreuil, named after the governor of Canada, um, but pretty quickly became known as Fort Carillon. Uh, And uh, the fort was begun in in the late fall of 1755 by the French, who progressively each year continued to to work uh, on the fortifications. Uh, And each year as the war developed, the British at the southern end of Lake George, and the French at the northern end of Lake George here at Ticonderoga, the portage from Lake Champlain to Lake George, kind of played out uh, every year uh, a series of kind of tensions between the two forces. And beginning at the very least in in 1758, the British made active efforts to capture Fort Ticonderoga, uh, ending on July 8th of 1750 in the disastrous Battle of Carillon, uh, which stands as the the bloodiest battle fought in North American history until the Mexican-American War of the 1840s. Uh, Mm -hmm. Finally, though, the, um, the 
British were able to capture Fort Carillon uh, in the summer of 1759. Uh, and in that year, they uh, hold the fort and they renamed it Ticonderoga, taking a corruption of an Iroquoian word that their native allies had used to describe this place, referencing a, a land or a place between two waters, referring to its geographic uh-huh. situation between Lake Champlain and Lake George. What does carry-on mean? Well, there's a lot of, of debate about that, and, and uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with any interpretation. There's been okay. um, some thought that it, it referenced the sound of the falls. There's other theories that it relates to the name of a, a French trader that had set up a trading post, but I'm not sure I've ever seen a definitive uh, uh, origin story for this. But it's very clear that even before the fort is built here, the French call the area Guerrillon. Um, the instructions to the French engineer, which we have here in the collection, make that make that very clear. Um, I should add, too, that if uh, visitors come this year, uh, they will also be able to engage with some of our exhibits that we have here at the museum. Uh, each year we try to place an exhibit that provides some context to the experience of uh, Ticonderoga in the year that we're portraying. And 1760 gives us a little bit of an opportunity not just to explore solely the year 1760. And we will have artifacts on display from our archaeological collections that were made in 1760, part of the restoration of the officers' barracks that occurred under the British control here, uh, weapons used by regiments that were part of Amherst's campaign against Montreal, um, and uh, some engraved powder horns from Massachusetts provincial soldiers uh, and others. But more broadly, uh, our exhibition, which is called Success, the End of the Seven Years' War, uh, is a reminder that while the North American phase of the conflict, at least the northern North American phase of the global Seven Years' War, ended in 1760, the broader Seven Years' War continued and even expanded after that point. And as part of utilizing the collections we have here at the museum, as well as the addition of an incredible new private collection that the museum uh, has undertaken the acquisition of, we're able to display artifacts that reflect on the war in Europe, um, where the Prussian army, subsidized by the British government, was fighting off both the Austrians, the Russians, and the French uh, in various theaters, uh, and also the allied army of, of some small numbers of British troops joined by Hanoveri. Hessians and Brunswickers were themselves fighting the French on the other side of, of Germany at the time, again, underwritten by the British government as part of their broader war aims. Uh, but it's worth remembering that after the fall of New France, uh, a new combatant joined the global conflict in the form of the Kingdom of Spain, um, who the British declare war on after they signed a, a defensive treaty with the French. And the entry of Spain into the war expanded the war dramatically, uh, going as far as the literally the other side of the world. And the British launch an operation to uh, capture, which they do, uh, the uh, Spanish capital of their Philippines colony, Manila. Uh, but more importantly for North America, in 1762, the British launch an operation against Havana, Cuba, at the heart of Spain's Caribbean empire um, and the kind of entry point for ships going to and from Europe. And this is important not just because it's a major British operation, but it's one that draws off almost all the regular troops that have been serving in North America uh, who leave from New York to join the, the naval force that's assembling uh, for this operation. And eventually, um, later in 1762, even those independent companies that had been stationed here at Ticonderoga join this massive force, which successfully conquers Havana. Uh, in 1762, a huge coup for the British military. And the British administer Havana as a British city 
until the end of the war in 1763. Mm. And we have artifacts that will be on display from the Havana campaign, including um, the commission of Philip Skeen, who was a brigade major in the British Army, uh, who had already developed land holdings in southern Lake Champlain, uh, which become... Skeensboro, which we now know is Whitehall, New York, on the southern end of the lake, where he had effectively a kind of fiefdom for himself. Um, But he was appointed town major uh, of Havana, which uh, basically gave him kind of the third-ranking level of authority in the British administration of the colony, which he used to manage the British military's control of Havana, but also to engage himself in the commerce of that region, which in large part was uh, the transfer and sale of enslaved Africans, many of which mm-hmm. he brought back to Lake Champlain, expanding the institution of slavery in this region that we don't often think about as being connected with this nefarious part of our global history. And yet it was these military campaigns that directly connects these themes together. Uh, you know, War, enslavement, commerce um, are all connected across the Atlantic world. And it's through individuals like Philip Skeen that we see these connections. And so we have uh, artifacts on display that directly relate to that experience of war and empire in the broader world that connects these places very closely because it was the same soldiers that had conquered Ticonderoga, that had conquered Quebec and Fort Niagara, that joined this army to conquer Havana, Cuba, which, um, as might not be a surprise to your listeners, is no longer a British city because, of course, uh, the Spanish and the British end up swapping at the end of the war. Havana goes back to the Spanish Empire, and the British take in exchange the two colonies of East and West Florida. Um, And by the opening of the American Revolution, the British now uh, have a colonial empire that includes both the French colonies to the north as well as the former Spanish colonies to the south, encompassing the entire eastern seaboard. Back to Fort Ticonderoga today, we're talking with Matthew Cagle, a curator at the fort. You have boat cruises with a vessel called the Carrion, the French name for the fort. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and and starting Memorial Day weekend, those boat cruises will be in operation, which allows our visitors uh, to go out um, throughout the day. Uh, We have a series of tours each day and get the experience from the water of Lake Champlain, uh, which is remarkable because that's frankly how most of the soldiers would have experienced it in the 18th century. That is the means of transportation. And it's very important, as well as, frankly, just being beautiful, uh, to be able to enjoy the landscape from the water. Um, one of the things that I think people are often struck by when they come to Ticonderoga, they, they go through our guest services at our Log House Welcome Center um, and, and enter the fort itself, is this sweeping view over Lake Champlain. Um, it is a It is a site of, of scenic beauty, which has caught people for, for generations, and the ability to actually get out on the water and see this new perspective on the landscape uh, from the lake is, is really quite wonderful. Um, and as I say, there's, there's stuff going on every day uh, at the museum in our Living History program and our exhibitions. Um, but I should also say that this is punctuated by a series of special events uh, year-round. Um, on Memorial Day weekend, on July 4th weekend, Independence Day, um, we have special programs going on that mm-hmm. take a little break from our 1760 narrative to focus on some key points in American history, um, because, of course, those holidays are so important for our nation today as the United States. And they will specifically be exploring the experience of soldiers at Ticonderoga in 1777, um, the kind of culmination of the Revolutionary War here, the defense of Ticonderoga over that summer, which 
actually coincides in 1777 with the very first anniversary uh, of American independence. Uh, and then if visitors come on July 22nd and 23rd, that is the weekend of our major uh, battle reenactment event where we will be portraying the, the final days and hours of the American defense of Ticonderoga in the face of John Burgoyne's British Army in 1777. And so visitors will be able to experience, you know, in, in, in real time almost, moving across our landscape, uh, the British forces kind of encircling the position around Ticonderoga uh, and pressing against the American defenders who are slowly trying uh, to resist their encroaches, even though they are heavily outnumbered. Uh, and our, our battle reenactment events here are, are different than you might find in a lot of places, and visitors will actually move with the armies as they um, kind of sweep across the landscape over that weekend. Burgoyne ultimately he took Ticonderoga, did he not, or no? He certainly did. He certainly did. And, and visitors will be able to witness the, uh, the final evacuation of American forces, not just the soldiers, but frankly, the, the civilians, the, the women, the families, the, the camp followers, uh, sutlers and others that were with the army who were loaded into boats uh, and retreated south uh, up Lake Champlain by the water, whereas many of the military forces uh, retreated overland, ultimately uh, engaging the British advance guard at the Battle of Hubberton the following day. Um, but uh, but boatloads of these um, troops and civilians will be uh, pushing off from the shore at the end of this reenactment weekend. So this, uh, this event, you know, again, covers land and water uh, here at Ticonderoga. You also have an exhibit uh, this summer called Underwater Ticonderoga. What, what is that? Yeah, so that will be opening up um, after our war college, or around the time of our war college, the Seven Years' War, um, which is just in about two weeks' time, one of our annual uh, seminars focused on the Seven Years' War period specifically. Um, and that's an exhibit which is going to pull together um, material from underneath the water, uh, right off Ticonderoga. Of course, Ticonderoga was a, a key point in the water systems uh, that really allow people and things to move across the interior of North America. In 1759, the, the British Army, largely through the efforts of American provincials, built two vessels right here at Ticonderoga, a sloop and a brig named the Boscowan and the Duke of Cumberland. Uh, and over the past 40 years at this point, there's been uh, numerous archaeological excavations done underwater of that material, and this exhibit will bring together some of the artifacts from those digs, not only ones conducted in the 1980s, but some of the most recent work that's been done uh, as recently as 2019 to explore uh, the area of the shipyard and, and better understand what's there. So not only will we have material uh, from both of these vessels on display, um, including uh, one of the ships, the Duke of Cumberland, which was raised uh, onto the shore as early as the early 20th century. Um, but we will have artifacts that have never before been seen in public um, that have undergone conservation as part of the academic work to better understand this landscape uh, and hopefully you know, inspire and encourage people to, to better understand the archaeological resources here and help us preserve them and understand them for the future so that we can use these things to, to better get a sense of what happened here to the people that were stationed at Fort Ticonderoga. Matthew Cagle joins us. He's curator at Fort Ticonderoga. After Burgoyne surrendered at, at Saratoga, surrendered his army at Saratoga, did, is that when the Americans took control of Ticonderoga, or how, how did that go? 
No, not, not entirely. In fact, uh, as the, the British captured Ticonderoga, and if folks visit us at the end of July, they'll be able to see this happen. Um, actually, the first quote-unquote British soldiers that enter the fort proper were not British at all. They were German. They were Brunswick auxiliaries from the regiment Prinz Friedrich, um, who raised their flag over the newly captured fort. And they remained in garrison at Ticonderoga through much of the rest of 1777. So it was a combined British and German force that was still garrisoning Ticonderoga when word came of the surrender of Burgoyne's army, um, which they were not party to. And so ultimately, uh, after themselves facing a, an American attack in September, um, simultaneous to the Battle of Freeman's Farm, um, which they, they ultimately were able to, to defend against, although uh, one half of the British regiment that was here was captured uh, in the American attack, um, the primarily German force at this point with, with the half regiment of British soldiers and, and some other reinforcements that had come because by the end of September, uh, many of the troops that had served under Barry St. Ledger's command against Fort Stanwix uh, had come back to Canada and then gone uh, up the Lake Champlain Valley to join the garrison here at Ticonderoga. They ultimately decided that given the surrender of Burgoyne's army, they couldn't maintain this post over the winter and decided to evacuate. And so uh, in the early days of November of 1777, uh, the British commander uh, of Fort Ticonderoga decided to pull out the troops. They began to destroy anything they could, artillery, buildings, uh, anything that might be of use to the Americans, um, and uh, slowly rode away under a lightly falling snow uh, very early in November. And no American forces immediately came back to take control of Ticonderoga. And so for the rest of the, uh, the conflict, there was no sustained you know, reoccupation of Ticonderoga, even as the fort itself was a, a point of reference uh, for various armies. And I should note here that Mark Lender has, has recently, recently written a book called Fort Ticonderoga, The Last Campaigns, The War in the North, 1777 to 1783, which very ably and compellingly describes the fate of Ticonderoga after John Burgoyne's capture in 1777, really putting a new perspective on the fort that, again, we until recently haven't heard much about historically. Is this year, 2023, like a coming back year? I mean, are you now past the... The, whatever problems you had because of the pandemic? You know, we found the, the pandemic to be an opportunity for us. Um, you know, it, it challenged a lot of us in the field to think about what we're doing, and, and we were able to pivot, you know, in part because of that, but in part because we had set the groundwork in our strategic plan for digital opportunities. There's more available online than ever through our online collections database where you can explore over 30,000 artifacts in the collection remotely um, from your home at this point to uh, educational programs, videos, uh, and other things through our Center for Digital History. But even in 2020, um, during the pandemic, we were able to open the site. We had a season, although it was curtailed for obvious reasons um, and had certain constraints on it. We have the benefit of having a nearly 2,000-acre historic site so we can bring people out onto the landscape in some ways, this does feel uh, like a return to, you know, a quote-unquote normal uh, campaign season for us. But, um, but again, we never, we never fully closed. And okay. so it's, it's just the continuation of this. And, and for us, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a motivating uh, factor. We're headed, of course, as, as you well know, towards the 250th anniversary of the American War for Independence. Um, and for us, that's going to start next year. 
Um, our year-by-year approach that we do here is entering, uh, I think, really the, the culmination of years of work through a project that we're calling Real-Time Revolution. So beginning in 2024, which for us will be 1774, when the fortification was garrisoned by a small detachment of British troops, we will be following over the next four years the Revolutionary War as it unfolded at Ticonderoga from 1774 to 1777. And so as garrisons change, as the fort is captured and recaptured, we will be doing that on the ground, following this conflict Mm -hmm. uh, day by day, month by month, year by year. Matthew Cagle has uh, joined us. He's curator of collections at Fort Ticonderoga, uh, one of the oldest and most significant historic sites and museums in North America. You can donate to the Historian's Podcast on our GoFundMe page. Find the link on our website, bobcudmore.com, or write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore. Send it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, one two three zero two. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.